Praise the Lord. We're going to have the scripture reading from uh, the book of 1 Kings, the sixth chapter. Amen. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor ax nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. And now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Baal, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to be here with uh, our church family. What an encouragement it is, what uh, a blessing it is, God, especially after being away for a Sunday. I uh, am just reminded uh, of how grateful I am for this Infinity Church family. Lord, I pray uh, for this time that we get to share. God, it's a blessing to be before your word and for your word to continue to show us who you are and what you're like and the, the blessing it is to know you and be known by you. So, God, I pray that as we look into your word today, God, you'd show us the, the glory of who you are, the glory of the incarnation, the glory of, of Christmas, of what Christ has done in coming to earth. God, we celebrate, among all the other things we've got going on, God, we celebrate that you are with us. Lord, bless the time we share in Christ's name. Amen. I was uh, reminded this week that it's been a little over three years since we all had to deal with uh, when COVID first hit. Uh, it feels in some ways like yesterday, but in other ways, I'm, the, the further in the rear view mirror that gets, the better, in my opinion. Uh, that was a really hard, especially the very beginning of that season was really challenging. And the things that, that remind me periodically is when we do something uh, in person that for a little while we had to do remotely. You remember how weird that was, the very beginning of all things COVID, that everything went remote, even things that didn't make sense. What I was reminded of this week is uh, our young, youngest, Lydia, had a dance recital yesterday, 
And I remember that they were doing, uh, you know, like young girls ballet classes over Zoom. Like, I wonder how effective that really was to be, you know, whatever. Anyway, that was probably interesting. I was, however, very close up to watching kindergartners try to do class in a Google Classroom with their teacher on a, you know, 10, 11, 12 inch, 13 inch, whatever the Google uh, Chromebook screen size is, while also looking at, you know, 16 pictures of their closest friends all standing in front of a camera. Like, it doesn't matter how engaging that teacher was, that just wasn't going to work for a kindergartner to sit and do that remotely. So many things did not work remotely that were intended to be in person. And church was one of those. Trying to do this without this was just terrible and no, no fun. I know that in many ways there are some things that COVID taught us. And it's nice to be able to Zoom instead of, I'm sure some of you don't have to fly on as many airplanes to go do the things you used to have to do when you can just you know, pull up a Zoom meeting. So I appreciate that. But one of the lessons, I think, from the horrible social distancing time period that we had to go through is that part of our humanity, part, part of what it means to be human, is that we are social people intended to interact face-to-face. That, that is how we were created, and it is not um, somehow auxiliary or, or, or tangential to who we are. We are created to be people who read each other's facial expressions and body language, and we're supposed to give each other hugs and high fives and fist bumps. Like That is part of our Humanity is to be able to see each other face to face. I'm in the camp of being skeptical of all things virtual reality and metaverse, kind of that you know growing trend right now. Uh, not because I'm anti-technology, but because I am pro in person. I am pro people, incarnational, being together as people, and I'm skeptical of anything that advances less of that. And if there was any doubt about the value of being in person, Christmas settles it. You know why? Because Christmas is the celebration of God being in the flesh face to face. Christmas is validating what it means to be together with one another and with God. Nothing could have validated our existence in the flesh more than Christmas. The song we sing this season, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Further down that song we sing, Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. If we ever doubted that being in the flesh, in person, really mattered, Christmas solved it. He came to earth as a child in the flesh. But this morning I want to ask, why is that so important? Why is that significant that Christ came face to face. I mean, he picked a century, that picked a time period, but he could have picked a different one. He could have waited till now and just put up a big video, you know, send it all immediately out to all of our devices, and we could have gotten all the information all at the same time via video. You know, he could have just written something in the sky. He could have done any number of ways to communicate whatever message he wanted to communicate, but he chose to do it. The method, the, the way he chose to do it, the means, the, the tool he used was taking on flesh, humanity, me and you, like us, coming and being one of us. Why? Why does that matter? To answer those type of questions, I want to look probably in a less expected place, and that is 1 Kings chapter 6 that Henry just read pieces of for us. 
Each Sunday this month, I want to come at the Christmas story from a little bit different angle. Every week this month, I want to take part of the Christmas story, but then connect it back to something from the Old Testament period of the kings, primarily First and Second Kings. Multiple times in the New Testament, we read that Jesus was the king of kings. That was one of his titles that he's given while he walked the earth. And as the apostles wrote about him, they said, this is a king unlike any other king. He is the king above and beyond all other kings. But for us in this world, this century, we don't really deal with kings very much. So what does it mean for him to be king of kings? And how might the Old Testament kings of Israel teach us about what Christ was like, who was the king of kings? I hope we can appreciate Christmas and appreciate the king of kings better by seeing what it means for God to send kings to Israel through his people. So today I want to drop in on a really significant moment in Israel's history in 1 Kings chapter 6. And I want us to imagine what it would have been like to be a visitor to the city of Jerusalem at this moment in Israel's history. Perhaps you and I could walk up to Jerusalem at this point, about a thousand years before Christ, and, and just see what was going on around us. Jerusalem's up on a, on a hilltop. There's higher mountains around, but it's, it's uphill, so you had to walk uphill to get there, wherever you came from. And as you walked up the hill and came into the city gate, there were probably a lot going on. At this point, during King Solomon's life, this is only the second generation that Jerusalem has been the capital city for the nation of Israel. Solomon's dad, David, is the one who conquered Israel and made it the central city of that nation. And so there was probably all kinds of new growth that's happening in this still relatively new city. New homes and new businesses and things that are going on as this city begins to swell and as more and more people come and move to this capital city. King David had, made it, had started it, but now Solomon was advancing it. And as he does, as Solomon's progressing along in this city, you and I, as we come into any gate we may have come in into the city, we would notice that there is one really big construction project going on right at the center of town. Other construction may have been going on, but this one was bigger than all those. And of course, this was time before bulldozers and excavators and skid steers. The, the construction project would not have looked like, not, would not have sounded like the, the backing up, the constant backing up we hear. Anytime there's grading going on, the beep, 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 whatever. It would not have sounded like that. Instead, it would have sounded like mooing and bulls and hammers and chisels and whatever else because construction would have been all by hand and by animal. Now, I'm no, you know, ancient construction expert, but I'm just assuming that this process would have been crazy looking compared to what we think of as construction. We get a little note in this, in this um, passage that they chiseled all the, the rock out at the quarry so they didn't have to chisel and hammer in place at the construction site. So we wouldn't have heard the ding, ding, ding around the construction site, but down the hill maybe. And then they loaded these stones, however big they are, probably in some kind of cart carried by animals and guided by people. All these stones have to get uphill because everything's uphill to Jerusalem and put into place by hand. What a process that would have been. The final product of this building would have been 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. I don't know how many stones it takes to make that big of a building, but a lot of stones. In addition to the stonework, maybe we and I, I, I would like to, of all the things I want to go see, I want to go see the carpentry work. The carpentry work that would have had to take place for this project would have been impressive. Because again, 
The lumber is not bought pre-sawn at Lowe's. Like you don't have it milled perfectly for you a thousand years before Christ. Solomon has, has, has um, obtained these beautiful cedar trees from Lebanon. And so as they come in Jerusalem, I don't know what the hand saw milling process looked like a thousand years before Christ, but it would have been something to behold. To get all these trees milled down to some kind of usable lumber for them to have in place. And I just have to imagine it would smell amazing as those cedar trees are all cut and made to be just right. After they are cut and they're ready, I, I don't know when exactly in the process this would happen, but somewhere along the line, artists get a hold of these boards. Because these boards are not just put up as are, they are taken and they've got some kind of engraving, some kind of designing into them. With The, the words are, they, they have uh, carved flowers and gourds into the board. It's, it gives a picture of, of a garden, of a garden. These, these boards that are beautiful by themselves now have been artistically decorated to look like a garden. If you and I were able to stay in Jerusalem long enough, after all the stone has been put up and all the cedar boards have been covered, the cedar was covering every surface of stone from the inside. No stone was seen from the inside. After all that process, perhaps we would get to see what would have been the most spectacular. I would enjoy the carpenter, but this carpentry work, but this would have been the flashiest. After all that's done in place, all that's set up, all the final surfaces were covered in gold, covered in gold for this project. Now, again, I don't know how they did it, but it said it was pure gold. So this Gold had to go through some kind of refinement process to get all the impurities, all the dross out of the gold. And then it says these panels, all these places, some for the altars, some for the walls, the doors, the floors, all of them were overlain with gold. So again, I don't know how you did this, but somehow you got to get solid gold melted down and poured out in such a way that it overlays every surface of the interior of this building. Huge panels completely covered in gold. And then again, after it's done in place, you let the artist come and do their work. Again, on the gold, like on the cedar, they're engraving scenes of a garden, palm trees and open flowers. It would have been beautiful to watch the artist begin to work on the gold to make it all like it was supposed to be. After all that's done in place, I imagine standing outside of this building one day when you see these giant, winged, angelic creatures brought into this building known as cherubim. These were seven and a half feet wide in their wingspan and again, completely covered in gold. Two of them that are brought into this facility and put near the back. You and I would have had to hang out for quite a while in Jerusalem if we were going to watch this whole process take place. It would take over seven years to complete this, not because it was necessarily enormous. I mean, 90 feet long is a good-sized building, but it's more about the detail, more about how precise and how everything was supposed to be perfect. As we'd have watched all these beautiful materials come in, all this, all this attention to detail, we'd have, it'd have been, we'd have been amazed by it. But at some point, you got to stop and ask, what is all this for? Why all the detail? Why all the elaborate expense? Why all the, the enormous amount of labor that would have gone in to bring all these things from all different places for this one building? Couldn't you just done a metal building? Wouldn't it have been easier, right? Why all the expense? You could stop and ask anybody in Jerusalem if you were there, and they would tell you why. This building is not just any building. This is the temple for the one true God. This temple was a place where God would meet with his people. And so our incredible, amazing God 
deserves the most incredible and amazing building. Somewhere along the lines, God himself spoke to Solomon, recorded in 1 Kings 12 and 13. He said, concerning this house that you are building, I will dwell among the children of Israel. This house, this temple, was to be the dwelling place of God, the God Almighty, the one who created heavens and earth, said, I will live among you, I will be with you, and the way you'll know I'm there is that I'm going to dwell in, I'm going to send my presence in a unique and special way into this building. And so if this building is going to house God, in a sense, it should be like God. One of the ways for us to appreciate the significance of Christmas, to appreciate the significance of the incarnation, of God dwelling among us, is to look back at how God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament. And if you look at the temple and all of its extravagant detail, all the, the work and the, the, all that had to go into to, to make that happen, God's word teaches us this. It teaches us about the majesty of God's presence. The majesty of God's presence. God isn't just a king like any old king. This is not just any old palace. This is a majestic temple that is built for the one true God. God is majestic. He is glorious. He is holy. So if there is some physical building that's going to be a place where he dwells with his people, then it too must be majestic and glorious and holy. Majestic buildings, the majestic building teaches us about our majestic God, the majesty of being in his presence. Seeing all the expense and the effort that went into the temple helps us appreciate the majesty of God in the flesh, Jesus coming to earth. If you pick up your Bible and just start reading in the New Testament, there's going to be a lot of things that are confusing about, why, about this Jesus that you meet on the first few pages. There are other parts of the Christmas story that, oh, that only make sense if this truly is God. Jesus' conception was not confirmed by some cheap, cheap test you can buy at a pharmacy, right? Jesus' gender was not revealed at a clever gender-revealing party. No, he got much better announcement than that. His conception and his gender was declared by angelic messengers from heaven directly to Mary and Joseph. You're going to have a baby, and it's a boy. <laughs> How about that for a gender reveal party? That only makes sense if this is something amazing. This is God in the flesh. The one who was majestic in the temple with the gold and the cedar and the stones, the seraphim, seraphim. This only makes sense to have an angelic messenger to come and declare it's a boy if this really is God. God's birth was announced, Jesus' birth, God in the flesh, was announced not with a perfectly posed social media, well-crafted social media post. His announcement was not just one angel, but a multitude of angels proclaiming for all around to hear, singing glory in the highest over the shepherds in the field. His birth was celebrated not just by anybody, but by magi, wise men who came from hundreds of miles away, who brought gifts that were really, really strange, unless this really was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are gifts fit for a king. They're things that fit well in a temple, not just in a stable. 
If you read the New Testament only reading Jesus' account, it's hard to understand where this can come from. But if you look back at the temple and you say, the kind of person who dwelled there in the temple, that's the person who is here in the stable. This is God and he deserves the angelic announcements. He deserves the gifts of the Magi. Looking at the temple, we see that Jesus, that Christmas wasn't the first time God came up with the idea of dwelling with his people. He's been doing this all, all along, and the temple helps us see what it looked like for God to dwell with his people. The temple itself was modeled after and was the more permanent version of a, of a tent version that was before that, that we call the tabernacle. Back during Israel's time when they left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, God gave to Moses a description of this uh, tent building, a tabernacle, where God would dwell with his people. And so many of the instructions, the way they built that, look like the temple that Solomon later built. For 40 years as they wandered, they put up this temple, took it down, I mean this tabernacle, put it up and took it down and carried it with them. And just like the bigger, more glorious version of the temple, this tent tabernacle version had incredibly precise details, incredibly ornate artistry, beautiful colors, specific dimensions. Christmas is meant to be a continuation of these kinds of uh, themes through the Bible. Where God shows up and he dwells with his people and he shows his majesty and his splendor and his wonder. Do you know the majesty, the splendor, the wonder of Jesus, God himself, dwelling with us? Is that old news to you that you write off as just another Christmas carol? Or do you see the glory of our great king who has come to be with his people? Of course, there are some pretty major differences between the temple and Jesus, and those differences make it even more glorious than the temple. I describe what it had been like to, to be there and watch the temple built, but in reality, if you and I were there, we wouldn't actually get to see most of it. Because you see, average people like us weren't even allowed to go into the middle or the middle middle parts of the temple. We probably, if we happened to catch the gold going into the building. That would have been the only time we were allowed to see it because only priests and only the high priest got to make it into the very center of the tabernacle and of the temple. If you lived in Jerusalem after the temple was built, it would have been a very big reminder that God is with us and it would have been a very big 45 feet tall, 30 feet wide, 90 feet long reminder that you're not allowed in his presence, that he is holy and you are not. It is a reminder that only a few can go in, and you're not one of them. It is a reminder that God is with us, but from a distance, with a wall between us and Him. God is with us, but we are not like God, Israel would have known. He's different. He's on the other side of the wall. He's with us, and we're thankful He's here, but I can't go in there, because that wouldn't go well. And the difference at Christmas is what makes Jesus all the more majestic. He is fully God, but also fully man. He didn't come to the temp temple. He didn't come to the tabernacle. He didn't come to the middle of Jerusalem. He came to Bethlehem. He came not an entrance like a, on a white horse. He came in a woman's womb, the most common and ordinary way, to an average woman, a woman of no special reputation. His first bed was a place where animals usually ate. He came to be with us. He was God with us, but not just with us on the other side of the wall. He was with us 
everybody, the normal, everyday person. Jesus was born in a humble way to show that he is not just with us on the other side of the wall, he is with us, his people. God removes the barriers between us and him when he comes in the form of a, a man, a child. That's why it's so significant. God could have done a, a video. He could have done a, a writing in the sky, but he chose not to because he wanted to say, I am with you. I am with my people. I am God with us. If you don't know the story of the tabernacle, you don't know the story of the temple, then you might not appreciate how significant that is. It, the first century world could not get their mind around God being with us because for them, God had always been on the other side of the wall. He'd always been on the inside of the temple. He'd always been on the inside of the tabernacle, places we can't go. God can't be with us. He's over there. But the beauty of Christmas is that he's not just over there. He is here. He is with us. And if you don't know the temple, you don't know how great that story is. Jesus came not just guarded by seraphim, but wrapped in swaddling clothes. He came not just to stand in the palace, but he came to be wrapped and put in a manger. The majesty of God's presence is in the ordinariness of his presence. He is with you and me. Do you appreciate that presence? Do you appreciate that God is just not, not just somewhere else? He is with us, the everyday common person. There's another description of God's presence in 1 Kings 6 that might strike us as odd. Again, if you only pick up your Bible in the New Testament, you might miss the the majesty of God's presence, we take it for granted that God became man, Jesus with us, but the temple helps us see that majesty and also sees another part, helps us see another part about his presence. Just as there's a part about his people's experience of that presence, there, that, that only makes sense if we read the temple. We, we read this about the, the, kings, about the presence of God, 1 Kings 6. This is what God said to Solomon, verse 12 and 13. He said, concerning this house that you are building, Talking about the temple. Concerning this house that you're building, if, if, you know how if statements work, right? This is a condition. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then, the condition, then I will establish my word with you, meaning I'll keep the promises I've made, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel. I want you to hear this. God's presence was majestic in the temple. But it was also conditional. I want you to see the condition of God's presence. The presence of his people, of God with his people, I mean, was not, it, the condition was that they had to obey. It was not guaranteed. God's presence with the nation of Israel was not guaranteed. They could lose it. They could lose it. God reminds Solomon that, yes, this is a new era. And the story begins in chapter 6. It references all the way back to the land of Egypt. So these are, these are big moments in Israel's history. They left, they left slavery. They built the temple. These are high moments in the people's life in Israel. But he's saying this doesn't change the fact that I have called you to be obedient. And if you are not obedient, I can reject you. That's the story that he's telling them. He says, if you keep my commandments, I will be with you. It is conditional upon the obedience of the people and the obedience specifically of the king. God saying, I, I will not be treated like a deaf and dumb fool or idol like the other nations. He says, King Solomon, you cannot go out and live how you want, do things your own way, and then come and kill a goat here at the temple and say everything's okay. 
He said, no, no, I'm not going to be manipulated. This temple is not a way for you to manipulate me. He says, I will only be with you if you continue to follow me like I have called you to do. I've called you, I've saved you, and I've invited you into a relationship with me. But if you reject me, I am going to reject you. God's presence in the Old Testament was conditional upon the obedience of the people and the obedience of the king. And the tragedy of the Old Testament is that the kings were not obedient. Solomon himself, just a short few decades after this point, begins to reject the God that he had built this immaculate temple for. He begins to worship gods of other nations as he continues to build these alliances with other nations and marry women, hundreds of women, and worships all the gods that they, of the nations they come from. By the end of Solomon's life, he's got hundreds of wives and hundreds of gods. And God says, this is not how it's supposed to be. Not how it's supposed to be. Solomon, great wise Solomon, rejected God. And his grace, God's grace, he didn't flee immediately at his people's rebellion, though he had every right to. He waited a little while, like 500 years. And generation after generation, king after king, we're going to see some good, some bad, etc. But on the whole, Israel, his people, rejected him. God had said, my presence with you is conditional. If you don't follow me, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring punishment. They didn't follow. They didn't obey. God brought punishment. He raised up the nation of Babylon, sent them to destroy Jerusalem, and not just the city in general. He sent them specifically to the temple. This temple with all the stone, all of its gold, all of its cedar, all the garden artwork, all the seraphim, whatever, all the things that are in there, destroyed symbolic of God rejecting his people and leaving no longer being with his people. The condition of God's presence was the obedience of the king. And they lost God's presence because the king was not obedient to God. Can you see how this connects to Christmas? Do you see how looking back to the Old Testament at a God who said, I will only be with you if you obey me. Do you see how this helps us appreciate Christmas and the coming of Jesus to earth? God's presence in the Old Testament was conditional on obedience. Let me ask you, is that still true today? Is it still true that God is only with His people when there is obedience? Is it still true that without obedience, there can be no experience of God's presence? Is God's presence still conditional? Yes. It is absolutely conditional. And more than just that connection, it is conditional on the obedience of the king. And here's the good news. You and I have a much better king than King Solomon. And he has always been obedient. God's presence with you and me is absolutely conditional upon the obedience of our king. And our king is the king of kings who is completely obedient. Therefore, to you and me, it is no longer conditional. It was conditional on the obedience of the son, Jesus Christ. And he lived perfectly. The king who came to be with us and one of us who is the king overall lived the perfect life, and that's the only way you and I can experience the presence of God. Obedience 
was, was a demand, a requirement. And Jesus met it. That's what's, met, that's what's meant by this kind of confusing verse, Hebrews 5, 8. Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How did Jesus learn obedience? No, it's that he proved. It's that he lived it out. He showed. He was evidenced. He gave the evidence of his obedience. Verse 9, Hebrews 5, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was perfect in that he lived it out. He displayed that perfection. He actually went through the suffering and didn't reject God when everybody else would have. He was perfectly obedient where you and I failed to be. And because of that, the condition of God's presence was met. You and I can know a majestic God. We can know his presence with us, even though it's conditional on obedience, because Jesus was obedient for us. Romans 5.19, For as the one man's by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Because Adam fell, David fell, Solomon fell, everybody fell. We've all been sinners ever since the beginning. But by the one man, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. God's presence with us is conditional upon the obedience of the king. And the king has been obedient, so we can be with him. Our obedience is not a prerequisite for being in the presence of God. But because God is with us and because we know him and believe in him, we obey him in loving relationship. I think it's something we will take for granted if we don't look back to the temple. We don't see the righteous requirement. This whole temple structure was meant to tell you, communicate to you, you are not like God. He is holy and we are not. And then we look to Jesus and we say, he is holy, we are not. And yet he brings us into his family with him. When we read in 1 Kings about this altar overlain with gold, we get another condition that has been met. The temple had an altar. The tabernacle had an altar. Why? These, these were places of sacrifice. You see, for those who have sinned, a sacrifice must be made if you're going to come back into the presence of God. And yet Jesus shows up. Without Mary didn't kill a lamb for, in order to get Jesus. How did she get Jesus? How did we get the presence of God among us? Well, what about those decorations on the tabernacle? I said there were different fruits and things in, in the temple. There's, a, there's flowers and these different, different garden instruments. What, what is that? You see, the temple and the tabernacle were both representations of another place where God had dwelled with his people before sin ruined it. Another place that was a garden, the Garden of Eden. It was heaven on earth, the Garden of Eden, a place where man and, and God dwelled together in perfect harmony because man was holy and God was holy. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were kicked out of the garden and God placed a wall between them and the garden. Except it wasn't a physical stone wall like at the, ta at the, at the temple. This giant wall was seraphim, just like the ones placed inside the temple. And these seraphim at the edge of the garden had a big flaming sword, an instrument of execution. You see, you can't get back in the garden just like you can't get into the temple without a sacrifice. And the garden, the flaming sword, this weapon of ex execution, is pointing forward to the altars at the temple and the tabernacle and the cross that Christ was crucified on. Christ came, and just like you had to have a sacrifice to get into the temple, Christ came to be the sacrifice so that we could have the presence of God. The majestic, holy King of kings 
met the perfect requirement of obedience, met the condition of, of what was needed for us to be in the presence of God. And he paid the penalty so that we could, be, could enter back in. And Seraphim lays down the sword, so to speak, and says, come on in. You are welcome. The payment has been made. What are you going to celebrate this Christmas? What are you going to celebrate about the beautiful season we get to enjoy? Do you celebrate being in the presence of God? Do you celebrate that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is majestic and almighty, he has come to be with us? Do you celebrate that, that this presence is not something you should ever have deserved and it's given as a gift freely? Do you celebrate that he is holy and wonderful and majestic and he is with us? My invitation for you to enjoy for this, Christ, for this Christmas season, and I changed this wording on your, if you're in your bulletin, it's a little different, but you'll get it. My invitation for the Christmas season is this, joyfully experience God's presence. Joyfully experience God's presence. Now you have to you read through the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden and the temple and even Jesus. Somewhere off, for some of you that know your Bibles, there's a little radar, a little, little bell going off, say, so wait, wait, wait. We'd say all this about God's presence in a, in a temple, in a tabernacle, in a garden. But isn't Jesus, isn't God everywhere? And we just did the attributes of God. He is omnipresent. So why do we even need something about God? Isn't God everywhere? Why do, why do we need this? Solomon knew this. He said in 1 Kings chapter 8, right after they built the temple, he said, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I can build? He's not saying God, we're not, the temple was not about God being put in a box and saying he's contained only to here. The temple was a way we could experience the presence of God, which is everywhere. It was the manifest presence of God. And so it is with Christ. He was the manifest presence, the display of God's presence. Jesus said he, his body is the temple that was killed and three days rise, would rise again. It's the way we experience God is through Christ. What about this side of the resurrection? Perhaps you know the veil was torn at the temple when Christ was crucified. No longer was there a separation between us and God. The sacrifice had been paid. Seraphim had laid down his sword. Now where is God's presence? Well, if you're a believer, he is in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. You can experience, you can know God because he can live inside of you. What better time to know God personally than at Christmas? If you don't know him, believing in him means repenting of your sins and trusting that he is your savior. He is the one that paid the debt you deserve to pay. And he did it freely as a gift of grace so that you could be in the presence of God and joyfully enjoy him forever. Well, I want to tell you, the, the good news doesn't stop there. God's presence is not limited to just your one little body. The way the New Testament describes where, where is God's presence now? It's among us. God is with you, but God is with us. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we are fellow citizens with the saints. We were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ himself was the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God's spirit. Why do we not have a temple? Why is this building not covered in gold? Well, it'd be expensive for one, but also because this isn't the house of God. You, we are the house of God. The way you experience God's presence, He's everywhere. 
Hey, well, you can't, you can't escape him, Psalm 139 tells us. You can't get somewhere he's not. But whether you experience him, whether you delight in him, is up to you in some ways. God, God will put himself some places you can't deny him. But you can say, hey, what am I going to do this Christmas? What am I going to focus on? What's going to be at the forefront of my mind? Got a long Christmas list. Got a lot of things to do, get accomplished. Got yard decorations to get out. The judgment in, in Fountain Inn's Thursday night. Make sure you get your Christmas decorations out by Thursday, you know. You got lots of things to do. And that could just be overwhelming to your mind. Or you can say, this is a season where I can joyfully experience God's presence. Spend time with Him alone and spend time with His people because we are the temple. We are the people of God. We are well where God dwells. There is no temple. We are not building a temple there. This is not a temple because we are the temple. We are the people of God where God dwells. Spend time with your brothers and sisters in the Lord this Christmas. Invite each other to dinner. Go out to eat. Swap gifts. Give hugs in person, in the flesh. Because this is Christmas. When God came in the flesh so that you and I could know the presence of God. There is a majestic God. His presence is amazing. It's conditional upon obedience. Christ was the obedient one so that you and I can delight in and enjoy his presence this Christmas and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making yourself available to us. Were it up to us, we would never, ever be able to get into your presence. And yet, God, you've made a way. You came, you showed us what it was like in the Old Testament, but you came and you accomplished it through your son, Jesus. God, this Christmas, may we delight in you. May we enjoy you. May we spend time with you and with our brothers and sisters. Because, God, you have given us such a great gift in your presence. May that be enough. May that be a, the greatest gift we get to enjoy. And, Father, who, whoever may be here or listen to this later on that doesn't yet know you and does not yet know your presence, God, may they seek you. May they turn from their sins. May they trust in you as their Savior. And may they believe in what Christ has done on our behalf. Father, as we sing, as we worship, may this be a time where we delightfully enjoy your presence. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us?